This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Michael Gord, and I'm an assistant professor at UC Santa Barbara in the departments of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology and Psychological and Brain Sciences. And today I'm going to tell you a little bit about some work both in my lab and also in the field in general, in a field that you may or may not have heard of, called systems or circuits neuroscience. And I'm really excited about this field because we're getting a lot of new technology that's allowing us to look at neural activity in an unprecedented detail, and we're learning a lot about how the brain functions. And this is going to be useful both for understanding in a basic science manner how it works, but also for trying to correct dysfunctions in neural activity. Okay, so in this talk, I'm going to cover a few major topics. The first thing I'm going to cover is why do, are we interested in studying neural circuits? Why do they matter? And I'm going to argue that they really serve as kind of a link between the biology of the neurons, the cells in our brain, and cognition. The second topic is how do we study the neural circuits? So I'm going to take a bit of a left turn and talk about some of the tools of the trays that we use to investigate neurons and circuits of neurons and how they work. And then finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the work in my own lab, uh, using some of the techniques I talk about to investigate uh, neural circuits involved in, in spatial processing. Okay, so what do neuroscientists study? Uh, there's a whole range, you know, you, you probably know already neuroscientists study the brain, but there's a whole range of different levels at which we can study the brain. So, for example, we can look at the level of uh, kind of molecular and cellular events, trying to understand how particular proteins in the neurons allow it to function in order to become electrically excited and signal to other neurons in order to change its connection strength with other neurons and so on. Then there's this kind of more intermediate level where it's looking at how, how uh, systems of neurons kind of work together, how they wire up and connect to each other in order to do particular computations. And then finally, there's the most macro level, what's called cognitive neuroscience, which is where we're looking at, at you know, whole brain networks and how they act together uh, during cognitive behavior. So, for example, when someone is reading or, or doing a memory task, which brain areas become excited? So this is often doing, uh, use, uh, uses fMRI, for example. Now, I kind of set these apart as three different uh, uh, kind of spatial scales, but of course, they, it, it's a smooth spectrum, and all of these interact with each other. So, for example, uh, drugs that work on molecular mechanisms might end up affecting cognition, and when you learn something, it ends up affecting molecular-level events in the cell. Now, in my talk, I'm going to specifically talk about the circuit systems level. Um, and, and again, this is because we're really starting to get some new tools just in the last uh, couple of decades that allow us to get unprecedented access to the nervous system and try to figure out what's going on. So why are neural circuits important? Now, if you were to open up your smartphone or laptop, I don't necessarily recommend doing this, but if you feel confident doing it, you would see something that looks like this, a printed circuit board with a bunch of electronic components on it. Now, even if you know nothing about electronics, you probably know that if you just kind of plucked all those components off and put them in a pile like this, you wouldn't get any interesting behavior anymore. You wouldn't be able to run Microsoft Word or text message your friend. Well, the brain is very much the same way. So we tend to think of it as you know, this big hunk of kind of undifferentiated tissue because that's what it looks like from the outside. But if you zoom in at the microscopic scale, each of these brain cells is actually very carefully organized and connected to its partners. So for example, this is a slice of a structure called the hippocampus from the mouse brain. This is a structure that's very important for forming new memories as well as spatial cognition. And uh, this is a special transgenic mice in which each of the neurons expresses a different colored fluorescent protein. And you can see that all of these neurons are kind of arranged in orderly rows. They all have these processes called dendrites that extend down this way. 
And it turns out they're all connected in very particular ways. So for example, all of these neurons are getting inputs uh, from these neurons down here, which in turn get inputs from this band of cells over here. And there's a very kind of well-defined circuit here. And if the circuit is disrupted, uh, then the hippocampus doesn't do uh, what it normally does. And then this has, you know, serious consequences for uh, memory formation and other uh, uh, cognitive processes. So, uh, you know, just like the computer circuit board needs to be wired correctly in order to function correctly, the brain is much the same way. And uh, so, you know, what, what is it that these, you know, sophisticated neural circuits kind of allow us to do? What, what cognitive functions do we get out of them? And uh, I just wanted to give you some examples from kind of across the animal kingdom, from different uh, uh, places in the evolutionary tree. And I, I didn't pick these totally by accident. Many of them are models that uh, neuroscientists use in order to study the brain. And the simplest is here on the left. This is uh, the C. elegans, um, which was the first... Uh, organism in which we actually map all of the neurons and how they're connected to each other. So we actually know there's exactly 302 neurons and we, we know how they're connected to each other. Um, since then, there's been one or two other simple organisms that uh, they've been working on figuring out this same connectivity diagram. Now, as you get into uh, uh, brain, uh, neuron, I'm sorry, uh, organisms with uh, larger uh, brains, it starts to become harder and harder to fully map them out. And that's because we no longer have the exact same neurons. So two humans don't have the exact you know, same complementary set of neurons. They'll often have different numbers, and it's more probabilistic how these connections get formed and what types of neurons they have. Um, so as we get these more uh, complicated brains, you, you get uh, many more uh, complicated and probabilistic structures. And that's part of what makes it so hard to figure out how they work. Now, why do some species have these larger brains? You might think that's obvious, like, well, of course, it makes you smarter, lets you do more things. And that's true, but there's also a real cost to having a bigger brain. Um, they're metabolically very expensive. You might not realize this, but your brain, despite being about a few percent of your body weight, uses up about 20% of the energy you consume. Uh, they're also very developmentally ex uh, expensive. So, you know, a mouse, for example, a, a baby mouse is ready to go about a month after it's born. It's completely independent. Um, a worm or a, a Drosophila, which, which is just a fruit fly, is, uh, is independent even sooner. Well, a human takes about 18 years, give or take a few years, before it becomes independent. Some never become independent. And uh, so it, there's a real cost when you have these big brains. It takes a long time to kind of get them set up and, and develop them and get them fully trained. Okay, so uh, um, what do, you know, even, let's take the simplest example of the C. elegans roundworm. What do these simple nervous systems allow us to accomplish? Well, the simplest nervous systems are, are principally, and this is probably why the nervous system evolved, is simply an input-output device. It takes in some sensory inputs, uh, so for example, like chemicals in the environment that might be tasty or something you want to avoid, and it instructs motor action. So if you look at the nervous system of this uh, uh, C. elegans, they have about 302 neurons, and some of these neurons are involved in sensation. Those are the blue neurons over here. Uh, some of the neurons are involved in motor action. Those are the, the yellow neurons over here. But you also have some neurons that are in between. So they're neither sensory neurons nor motor neurons, but they're kind of connected to both. And those are these uh, orange neurons here, and they're called inner neurons. And, uh, and they uh, allow the, the organism to do kind of more complex things. So for example, even this worm, which has a very simple nervous system, it isn't just an input-output device. It doesn't always react the same way to environmental stimuli, but it can act differently depending on its internal state. So for example, if it's hungry, it might respond differently to a food cue than if it's not hungry. And uh, as we get into more complex brains, this uh, becomes even more the case. So um, you know, as organisms get bigger and bigger, you would expect there to be uh, more brain cells simply because you have more sensors on your body, you have more muscles that you need to control. And uh, sure enough, there's an orderly relationship between an organism's mass, at least in vertebrates, and its brain size. 
However, there are some surprises. So you can actually kind of predict how big a brain an organism should have based on its mass. And you find that there are some animals that have less or more than you would expect. Um, and, and so this is often quantified as the encephalization quotient. So it's basically the amount of uh, brain mass that an organism has divided by how much you would expect given its size. And so some animals, uh, you know, particularly humans, are kind of way overrepresented in how much brain they have versus what you'd expect given their size. So uh, uh, we end up having about seven and a half times as much brains as you would kind of expect. Um, and if you look at some of these other animals that are overrepresented, you'll see that they also, uh, you know, tend to be animals that we think of as, as being kind of smart, having complex behavior, dolphins, uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, etc. For those of you who are cat people, notice that dogs edge out cats. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, this is very simplistic, and, and I, I, we can't take this too literally as kind of a measure of the intelligence of an organism. But uh, needless to say, there, there are certain organisms that seem to have a kind of a gross overrepresentation of uh, brain size relative to the size of their bodies. So why is this? Is it because they have more sensors or more uh, muscles? No, it, what really is being overrepresented are all these inner neurons that I was talking about, the ones that aren't directly for sensing or for uh, enacting motor actions, but the ones kind of mediating processes in between. And so what are these doing? Well, some of it might be for getting more complex sensory perceptions. So, for example, the ability to recognize your friend rather than simply reacting to light. Or uh, some of it might be for more complex motor actions. So, you know, learning how to play the piano, for example, as opposed to just doing kind of, you know, basic ingrained like walking behaviors. However, we think some of it is actually involved in more complex representations are kind of divorced from either sensory or motor uh, action. So, for example, the ability to remember things that happened a while ago or even to have kind of internal representations of the external world uh, that aren't dependent on your immediate sensory input. So what do I mean by an internal representation? It sounds like kind of a, uh, you know, out there psychological idea, um, but it's actually quite simple and intuitive. Um, the idea is that, uh, you know, even when something is outside of our, our sensory view, uh, uh, we can still uh, kind of perceive it as being there. And so babies actually learn this quite quickly. Um, so um, if you take a ball from them and you put it behind a board and then you knock the board on top of it, uh, they are not surprised at all when the board doesn't fall all the way down, but it lands on this ball. If you put a trap door here so that the board actually falls all the way down, they get surprised, and you can measure that in various ways I won't get into. Um, however, this doesn't happen right away. They actually learn it through experience, um, and there's kind of a specific developmental stage at which they learn this. And it turns out we learn all kinds of intuitive you know, physics about the world, how the world works. You know that if I drop this pointer, it's going to go down and not float up in the air. Um, and, uh, and this is very useful, and, and, you know, this doesn't just apply to kind of sensory things like in this case, but, you know, we have abstract rules about, you know, what's legal and illegal in our society or about social relationships and all these things. We're able to represent things abstractly. Now, notice that animals don't have to do this in order to be successful at survival. So, for example, rather than kind of perceiving uh, the world as, as these, you know, objects and that, you know, maintain their mass and everything, even if they're out of view, you can just build a system where, for example, uh, you see something that has a certain characteristic and then you eat it. Um, so, for example, the frog has a structure called the optic tectum, which is involved in sensing small dark spots that are on a light background, which usually corresponds to a fly or an insect, and then it, it goes for it. And here's a video showing exactly how that works. You can see they uh, do it quite well, these little ants drifting across the screen. And even though it's not getting any tasty morsels, they'll keep on doing this because uh, their brain has basically just been trained up in such a way that when you see this black spot, you eat it. 
And uh, you may laugh and think that the frog is being dumb, but you'll see that this uh, strategy is actually quite successful and he eventually hits pay dirt. So, uh, um, you know, we, we shouldn't, uh, this, this type of sensory processing works quite well. And many of these species I mentioned have been along, around a lot longer than humans have and will continue to be around even after we're gone. So we shouldn't uh, make fun of them. But um, I should also note that, you know, the internal representations aren't unique to humans. Uh, many critters have them, including, you know, insects and, and uh, frogs. Um, so, uh, uh, but, you know, what, you know, what I can say is that humans have kind of more complex internal representations. Hopefully I don't have to argue that. Okay, so now I'm going to take a bit of a left turn. So I talked a little bit about how we have these internal representations that allow us to kind of understand our world. Um, now we want to know, how do we actually study this? So, you know, clearly this is uh, not going to be mediated by single neurons, by, by, you know, entire circuits full of neurons. And we need a way to be able to kind of measure neural activity uh, while animals are doing various cognitive processes, we need to be able to manipulate the activity of these neurons in order to see uh, if we can kind of disrupt these processes. Um, and, and we need to be able to visualize these neurons, see where they are, uh, how they form the various circuits that they do. And this is where uh, the tools come in. So this is something that really what kind of wasn't around when people first started studying the brain. And as a result, we were able to make kind of limited progress. But as we have uh, developed more sophisticated tools, we've been able to really kind of dive in and understand uh, how these different circuits work. Um, and, and so the principle one, one of these tools I'm going to talk about is genetic modification. Uh, you probably learned about this a little bit in one of your biology classes. But it's the ability to kind of add, remove, or alter uh, target uh, genes in, in specific cells. And that's really important. We can, we can do it only in some neurons, not others, or only in, in you know, one brain cell type and not another brain cell type in order to figure out how things are working. Okay, so how do we actually do this? There's two general approaches. Uh, the first is that we can infect the cell with a virus. Uh, so typically we just kind of inject a virus directly into the animal's brain. Um, and so you might think this is awful, why would we do this? Um, um, and that's because you know what viruses typically do, which is they, they kind of glom onto cells, they inject their DNA or, or some RNA into the cell, that gets incorporated and, and uh, ends up making more copies of the virus, which then break open the cell and spread around. Unfortunately, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic caused by one of these viruses. Um, however, uh, viruses can also be very useful for scientists. So, you know, of course, there are a lot of negative uh, things that come about from viruses, but we can actually engineer them in order to work for us rather than against us. And the way we do that is we change uh, the DNA or RNA that's inside the virus. So instead of making more copies of itself, instead it makes proteins that are useful for us. So, for example, we can uh, put in a sequence of DNA that will cause it to express a protein which is fluorescent. Um, you know, in fact, this is very commonly done. We took a fluorescent protein from jellyfish and uh, we put the sequence in for that protein so that they, the cell will then make copies of this green fluorescent protein and we can see where that cell is. Um, we also have transgenic mice, and I'm not going to get into the details here in the interest of time, but the idea here is rather than kind of injecting a virus in, we, we actually manipulate the germline so that the mice will express different genes that they uh, wouldn't ordinarily. And again, this allows us to get specific proteins that the mice wouldn't normally express. Uh, we can mutate the proteins or we can have them express proteins from other organisms like jellyfish um, under the control of uh, of genetic drivers. So for example, we can put them just in the neurons that release dopamine or just in glia cells or, or in some other way that allows us to do the experiments we want to do. 
So a couple of examples of that. Uh, so first, a very uh, obvious example. Um, here they express this green, green fluorescent protein I was telling you about from the jellyfish in the skin of the mice. And you can see, uh, so one of the parents was positive for this gene, the other one was negative, and you can see which pups inherited the uh, positive allele. Uh, we can also um, express this green fluorescent protein in neurons. Um, so this is, again, in the hippocampus, that area I showed you earlier. And uh, depending on, on what genetic driver you use, you can get uh, either kind of dense expression across all the cells, very sparse expression. So you get only these single cells, which allows you to zoom in and see the microstructure. They have these little uh, uh, bumps on them called spines where they receive inputs from other neurons. Um, so this really allows us to kind of label cells in a comprehensive way. And uh, most recently, we've actually, um, uh, you know, some other labs have developed approaches for uh, clarifying intact tissue. So rather than having to kind of slice it up or dissect things, we can actually look at relatively intact tissue and see uh, where all the different types of neurons are. And this is allowing us to develop uh, kind of brain atlases where we can look at different cell types and know where they're located and how they connect to other regions. Um, so, for example, this is a brain here uh, before it's had anything applied to it. And then after this technique, for obvious, uh, for obvious reasons, is named Clarity, um, you can actually read text through the brain. And what they've done is actually replace the lipids with hydrogels in order to make it transparent. And uh, once you do that, uh, you can actually, so this is kind of zooming in through that same hippocampus region, and uh, uh, they've used different colors to label different cell types. So we can start to get an idea of how all these cells are arranged within the hippocampus. Um, and, you know, in the interest of time, I don't have, I, I won't be able to talk about this, but uh, there are a number of other approaches, including those using electron microscopy, which are also mapping out the brain in very exquisite detail. And we're hoping to kind of put this all together into resources where we can use it, you know, where if you want to study a brain region, you kind of know where all the inputs and outputs to that brain region are, and you know what cell types are there. And uh, it, it's very helpful in doing your experiments. So in addition to uh, uh, mapping brain structures, you know, we don't think that just mapping them alone is going to be sufficient to understand what's actually going on. In order to really understand what's going on, you need to kind of observe the neurons in action and see what they're responding to. And so uh, a lot of neuroscientists are working on ways to actually measure the activity. And uh, there are a number of ways to do this. Uh, the, the traditional way is to actually put an electrode into the brain so we can record the electrical activity from them. But I'm going to talk about a newer one. Uh, and what's nice about this one is you can do it in a relatively non-invasive way because it's using purely optical techniques. And uh, this is using, a, uh, uh, you know, again, a genetic trick in order to uh, make the neurons blink when they become active. So how does this work? So we take a green fluorescent protein. So this is, again, our green fluorescent protein, which was originally isolated from jellyfish. And it's been modified in such a way that it is calcium sensitive. So it's brighter when there's high calcium and uh, less bright when there's low calcium. Why would we do this? Well, it turns out that neurons, when they become excited and they fire action potentials and communicate with other neurons, there's a big influx of calcium. And so we actually see this as the neurons kind of blinking as they become active. So this is actually a recording from my lab in which you see neurons becoming active. Um, um, as, uh, so in this case, we're showing them a visual stimulus and they're kind of lighting up as they see things that uh, uh, this is in the visual cortex. So they're uh, responding to certain things in the visual field. And uh, what's nice about this is, you know, again, because it's genetic, we can uh, actually build it into the mouse line. So there are transgenic mice which express uh, these uh, green fluorescent proteins that have been modified in, you know, different types of neurons. So this is one that expresses in excitatory neurons. And you can see the whole uh, brain, this is looking down on top, kind of gro uh, glows bright green. 
Um, however, uh, it would normally be very hard, you know, the brain is a highly scattering tissue and uh, we, we can't make it transparent and, and, you know, a living mouse. So it would normally be very hard to kind of see what these neurons are doing in an intact organism. And ultimately, we want to be able to do this in animals that are behaving and moving around. And so this is where uh, s some technology comes in. So earlier we kind of borrowed from molecular biology, but here we're actually borrowing from physics and engineering. So we uh, uh, developed these microscopes um, in which we can actually uh, shoot light kind of deep into the tissue uh, in order to read out the neural activity uh, without having to dis dissect it in any way. Um, so, uh, you know, one example of this is a light sheet microscope. I'm actually going to skip past that, um, but I'll talk more about this. This is a two-photon microscope. So the idea here, the reason it's called a two-photon microscope, is we're shooting IR light, which passes through the tissue, and then where the photons are focused, they kind of run into each other, and there's an interaction which will excite fluorescence, uh, even though it passes through all the other tissue. As a result, we can image relatively deep into the brain um, without, uh, without needing to dissect, you know, any of the top layers off. So uh, so this is actually a light sheet microscope, which I won't go into, but this allows you, uh, you can only or, uh, image kind of transparent organisms and they have to be fixed, uh, but this is a zebrafish being imaged and you can see there's uh, several thousands of neurons that are all being imaged simultaneously. So it's a very cool technique. Um, but for the organisms we're interested in mice, we use the two photon microscopy. And uh, just to give you an example of how we're doing this, you know, again, we want to be able to study these animals while they're awake and behaving and, and hopefully having some kind of an interesting internal representation. And what my lab is studying right now is, is how uh, uh, animals kind of map the space around them, how they use their sensory input to kind of figure out where they are in space. And so how do we do this? The mice need to actually be still uh, while we're imaging them. Um, so what we do is we actually move uh, the world around them. So we have them uh, walking around on a, uh, a floating uh, chamber. And so this uh, chamber is actually being floated on essentially like an air hockey table. And it moves around them and they can explore and sniff around and do all the things that mice do. And meanwhile, without them even knowing that we're doing this, we can image their neural activity. So right now we're imaging this area called the hippocampus. Um, and so you see all these blinking cells. So this is a band of cells I showed you way back at the beginning of the talk. And this is another area of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. And you can see the activity of these cells. And we know from you know, old experiments that these cells respond when the animal's in a particular place in the environment. This is a couple of examples here. So this is a representation of our circular chamber. And this neuron, for example, always uh, becomes active when the animal's in this location within the chamber. So they basically have a map of the animal's uh, local space uh, encoded in the activity of these cells. And we can use that to read out the internal representations in the animal's brain. Okay, so that's how we can use uh, the measurement of neural activity to try to start to, to try to figure out uh, what's going on. How can we actually uh, do causal experiments? You know, if we uh, figure out that some region seems to be important for something, we want to really test, like, okay, if you take those neurons offline, does that disrupt the behavior in some way? Or if you stimulate them artificially, do you, can you uh, artificially evoke that uh, activity? And so for doing that, we needed a technique for manipulating cells. And uh, traditionally, the only way to do it was, you know, people would stick electrodes in, kind of zap a bunch of tissues. It, it was, you know, kind of a mess. You, you hit all sorts of neurons, whether or not you mean to. Um, but recently, again, using kind of genetic tricks, we've gotten more specific ways to manipulate neural activity. And uh, what we've done is, again, kind of taken, uh, we, we kind of borrowed from nature. We, we took these proteins uh, that were from other organisms. Um, often these are com coming from algae, bacteria, uh, even archaea, which are kind of these extremophiles that leave, live in uh, uh, high salt environments. And uh, th these are uh, proteins that are responsive to light. 
And what we do is we take them and we artificially express them in neurons. And so we can then shine uh, light, which normally doesn't enter the brain, and uh, we can even do it at different wavelengths like blue and yellow, and use it to excite or inhibit the cells. So for example, this is a neuron that's uh, expressing both an excitatory and an inhibitory opsin. And when you shine blue light, it starts firing these little, these little blips are called action potentials. That's how the neuron uh, uh, signals to other neurons. And then when you shine the yellow light, it stops firing the action potentials. We have kind of bidirectional control um, of, over the neurons. Usually we just do one or the other, but you can do uh, bidirectional control as well. So uh, you may think, okay, why is this useful? Well, just to give you an example of how it can help you figure out what neurons do, uh, this is a mouse in which uh, they took some neurons which are, belong in an area called the uh, hypothalamus. And it was known for some time that these neurons get active uh, when the animal is really thirsty. So, for example, if you restrict their water for a little while, these neurons seem to uh, undergo a lot of gene expression, which, which suggested that they were active. And so uh, what these researchers did is they actually put this uh, optogenetic probe, they put channel rhodopsin in there, so that when they shine blue light, it will artificially excite these neurons. And so this is a mouse, um, and, and so there's a little fiber optic cable, which is going to shine blue light, so it's not on yet. So the light gets turned on right now, and then the, you'll see that the mouse beelines over and goes straight for the water. There was no interest in the water beforehand. As soon as the light goes on, the mouse wants nothing else, you know, nothing other than uh, drinking continuously. And as soon as the light turns off, loses interest. So it's really kind of, these neurons seem to directly control the, you know, sensation of thirst that the mouse has. Um, just to give you one more example, this one's a little uh, scarier. Um, they actually found neurons that seem to control aggression. So these are also in this area called a hypothalamus. And when you excite these neurons, uh, the mouse, uh, which, so right now they're putting this little rubber glove in here, or latex glove, and the mouse doesn't care until they turn a light on, and then the mouse starts attacking this glove. Um, so uh, um, it, it allows the researchers to figure out exactly which neurons are underlying what we think are you know, these relatively uh, complex behaviors. Okay, so how do we do this to look at something more cognitive, to look at spatial perception? So now I wanted to get to a little work in my lab, and I have to move quickly here, but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we're using this. So we became very interested in how uh, the brain uh, recalls kind of familiar context in order to guide motor action. So for example, when you walk out of your house and you're trying to get to work, you kind of see a familiar landmark, and you're like, oh, I have to turn right here in order to get to where I'm going. Um, and so we, we tried to simplify this as much as possible. Um, so we didn't actually want the mice running around because then there's all kinds of other spatial signals which might be confusing. So we actually basically taught the mice to do a video game in which they go down one of two mazes and depending on which maze they see, they have to choose to turn right or to turn left. But again, we didn't want them actually moving, so all they're doing is rotating a joystick. So you can think of this as kind of like riding a bike or, or driving a car or, or playing a very simple video game. Um, you're just selecting your route, but you're not actually physically moving in any way. So this is what it looks like when the mouse does it. So the mouse is down here, and you see their little forepaws are on the joystick. And as they go through the maze, uh, they kind of stop at the junction, and then they have to choose which way to go in order to get the reward. And this mouse is well-trained, so it, it gets a reward pretty much every time. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, it takes a month or two to train the mice to do this, but eventually they do it at a pretty high accuracy. And so, uh, so not perfect, they're about 80% correct, but eventually they do pretty well at this task. So now we want to see which brain region is really important for doing this, and can we figure out something about the circuit uh, underlying the behavior. 
So the first thing we did is we wanted to look very coarsely at the uh, neural activity across the uh, cortex, which is the kind of top part of the mouse's brain. And so we used this uh, microscope we built in the lab that allows us to image, uh, you know, again, this is kind of through the mouse's skull, so they have no idea we're doing this while they perform the task, and allowed us to see all these different kind of brain regions. And perhaps unsurprisingly, there was a whole bunch of different brain regions that lit up when the mouse performed the task. There's visual areas that are seeing the pattern. Uh, there's motor areas when they turn the joystick. So we wanted to uh, look very simply at, are there particular regions that seem to be more active when the mouse performs correctly, and, and particularly before they actually make their decision, because that's before they know whether they even got it right or not. And uh, it turns out that there's this one area, and you can see it's kind of near the midline of the cortex, uh, that is more active um, when they're performing the task correctly. This is an area called the retrosplenial cortex. And this was an area that really interested us because it gets a lot of inputs from spatial areas as well as sensory areas and has outputs to uh, areas controlling motor action. So it seemed like a really good place for kind of tying together the uh, sensory input and the memory and then using it to guide the action in the correct way. We also know that if you lesion this area, they have problems with spatial navigation. It's true in humans as well. So how did we test that this area was really important? So again, we used uh, uh, causal you know, experiments in order to see what was going on. So we injected a virus that expressed an arcuridopsin. So what this does is actually suppresses a cell when you shine light on it. And so we expressed it just in the retrospinal cortex. You can see that in the red. We also put a red fluorescent protein there just so we can visualize it. And we found that when we shine a light, we suppress activity just in the retrospinal cortex without affecting the other regions. And uh, if you look at performance, on the trials in which we shine the light, they did much worse near chance, or actually slightly below chance, uh, compared to trials in which we didn't sh uh, shine it. Um, well, if we just shine the light alone without having uh, the virus in there, then they uh, performed similarly to uh, the normal case. So this showed us that this area is really important. Um, and so next we wanted to look at the individual neurons to see if we could figure out what was going on. And so uh, here, again, we had the mice performing the task, but we used our two-photon microscope to actually look at the individual neurons in the retrospinal cortex while they were performing the task. And what we found is, uh, so sure enough, you know, Particular neurons kind of responded in different ways during the task. So some of them, you know, preferred the yellow dash maze. Others performed the blue uh, diagonal line maze. Some of them uh, responded to both of them, but with slightly different dynamics. Um, and then using a bunch of computational approaches, which I won't get into, so we also borrow a lot from math and computer science, uh, we, we kind of uh, were able to decode different parts of the task just based on the neural activity. So we could see, like, where the mouse was encoding, uh, you know, what their sensory context was, where they were encoding their motor action, and where they were encoding uh, the, the kind of outcome, whether they uh, got it right or not. And so, uh, you know, for example, we found in the posterior part of the retrospinal cortex in the back of the brain, that's where they seem to be encoding uh, the context that they were viewing. Uh, while the motor action started posterior, but then actually uh, uh, moved anterior as they actually started turning the joystick. And we did anatomy experiments showing that uh, the visual input is actually coming into the posterior, and then the outputs to the motor areas are leaving from the anterior area, which wasn't really known before. So we, we were basically working out this circuit uh, by which you know, the animal is able to uh, receive sensory input, associate it with a memory, and then use it to control its actions. Um, and of course, you know, this is, is going to be useful for understanding what goes wrong, you know, when people, you know, have damage to this area, the retrospinal cortex. Um, now, it's, it's pretty rare to have lesions in this area. However, it is one of the first areas that degrades during Alzheimer's disease. So uh, during neurodegeneration, um, this could be, uh, you know, responsible for some of the symptoms that uh, underlie getting lost, for example, or having problems spatially navigating. So we're trying to figure out exactly how this circuit works.
So to summarize, the field has developed a lot of powerful new techniques that allow us to examine neural circuits even in behaving animals. And this will allow us to understand uh, some of the uh, uh, neural activity that underlies complex behaviors. So I just wanted to give you a couple of examples to leave off with of ways in which we've used our knowledge in order to uh, build new therapeutic devices. So this first one is a patient who uh, unfortunately suffers from Parkinson's disease. Uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with, uh, I'm sure you've all heard the name Parkinson's, but it results from the death of dopamine neurons that project to the basal ganglia. And it results in these uh, characteristic okay, so the uh, tremors and, and inability to control or, or cease motor action. Um, now, it turns out, uh, it was discovered that if you stimulate a different session. part of the circuit, you can actually relieve the symptoms like from Parkinson's disease. And so this patient actually has electrodes that have been implanted on. into this area. And right now, the physician is uh, using this interface in order to turn on the stimulating electrodes. And you'll see what happens. I can get my five uh, fingers to hit the he's button. He's having trouble pushing the buttons, but you'll see what happens once he manages to turn on the electrodes. Almost immediately, the tremors feels. cease. And the patient is now able to uh, uh, do feel. you know quite agile movements with their hands. Yeah. So this is, this is you know quite an incredible uh, uh, relief of symptoms. Um, and again, this is only possible because we know of the circuitry underlying this disorder. Excellent. Finally, okay. one more example. Uh, this is a, a four-year-old girl who has uh, unfortunately lost her hearing uh, you know, from birth, and uh, she's just been implanted with a cochlear implant, which directly stimulates the uh, neurons in her cochlea. And so here she is hearing for the first time. Can you hear mom? Yeah. You can hear me clearly? Yeah. You can hear what I'm saying? <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is so funny. I can hear my voice. You couldn't hear your voice before? That one gets me every time. No. You couldn't? No. Okay. So hopefully uh, you got a taste for you know, some of the techniques that neuroscientists are using and also you know, why we are uh, investigating neural circuits. I hope you enjoyed the talk and thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.